hundreds of thousands of protesters in Israel chanting democracy or rebellion. Interestingly, both supporters and opponents of Mr. Netanyahu's judiciary overhaul claim they are defending the soul of Israel's democracy. Yeah, it is clearly a crisis. Uh, some people argue that this is one of the most uh, central crises in the, wow. in the life of Israel. Some people, for example, who fought in wars say that this is uh, like a war. Like, But right now we are talking about a different type of, uh, of uh, thing. We are talking about people who declare that they are not ready to serve in a military of a country which is not a democracy. This is the, a different claim. What, what is really at stake these days in Israel is the debate about the way that the judges are nominated. Uh, it was a type of historical moment like Marbury ver versus Madison, if you wish. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, decides that there is a judicial review. So that's what happened uh, in Israel in the 90s. And this uh, what led us uh, probably uh, to today's, uh, um, um, let's say, uh, crisis. Yeah. Because many people did not like this decision. So at this point in time, unfortunately, our only check and balances, our only effective check and balance, is the Israeli uh, court. Supreme Court or High Court depends on uh, its uh, exact function. Many people rejected the idea. First of all, Ben-Gurion, who didn't want to have a constitution standing in his way of uh, building and creating a state with his uh, vision. And second, the ultra-Orthodox forces that saw the, the Bible and the Jewish uh, uh, religion as the real constitution and didn't want Israel to have any oh, other wow. uh, superior laws. Did you know that Israel doesn't have a codified constitution? Instead, it has uh, what we call basic laws. These basic laws were composed not through constitutional conventions. Rather, they have been composed over the years by Israel's Knesset, which is both a legislature responsible for Israel's day-to-day -day laws and also a constituent body responsible for Israel's basic laws, i.e. its constitution. This system worked quite well for 75 years. However, in the last uh, few years, something has changed and it seems that the Knesset is mixing. It mixed everyday politics in creating uh, Israeli constitution. Hey there, news peelers. Today is April 14, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both. And let's get into it. According to the Wall Street Journal, top economists, Israel's technology sector, senior jurists and security officials oppose Mr. Netanyahu's government plans for the judiciary. They explain that it would undermine the checks and balances of the country and hand near unchecked power to the ruling coalition. In March, civil unrest in opposition to Mr. Netanyahu's judiciary overhaul brought Israel to a virtual standstill, affecting schools, banks, government buildings, airports, roads and freeways, and even hospitals. But it was way more than that. To demonstrate their opposition, many reservists 
did not report for military duty last month. And this is a big deal in Israel, a country in which military service is a sacred national duty. And when Israel's defense minister suggested that the judiciary overhaul plan should be delayed, Mr. Netanyahu fired him, a decision he later reversed. But my guest for this episode, Dr. Gidon Chahad, explains that he wasn't really fired anyway. For now, Mr. Netanyahu has relented, at least until the end of this month. And here's a statement from him, as reported by the New York Times. When there is a possibility of preventing a civil war through dialogue, I, as Prime Minister, take a timeout for dialogue. To better understand the structure of Israel's government, its systems of checks and balances, and its politics, particularly the personalization of its politics, I spoke with Dr. Rahat, who is a Kirsten Family Chair in Political Science at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His research fields are comparative politics and Israeli politics. His interests include political parties, electoral reform, the personalization of politics, and candidate selection methods. He is a senior fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. He is the author of several books, including From Party Politics to Personalized Politics, Party Change and Political Personalization in Democracies, which we discuss in this episode. To learn more about Dr. Rahad and his extensive research and publications, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Rahad and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Rahad, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So, let's start with the basics. Does Israel have a constitution? The answer is yes and no. Yes, uh, and yes no. because every country has a constitution, especially democracies. You have a, a collection of uh, norms, laws, conventions that people see as a uh, constitution. Even the United Kingdom, the classic uh, case of not having a constitution, yeah, yeah. have a constitution in, in this sense. In the sense of having a coded constitution uh, that is uh, defended by, uh, from uh, change by uh, majority at any point of, uh, in time, we, Israel do not have a constitution. Actually, the Israeli legislator, the Knesset, Mm -hmm. It was elected as the constituent assembly, as an assembly that would uh, adopt a constitution, uh, did not adopt a constitution, but turned into a regular legislator. But the Knesset act is actually still our uh, constituent assembly in the sense that it can legislate the constitution. And this uh, worked quite okay for 75 years, the Knesset was adopting uh, what we call basic laws, one after the other. Uh, and these, at the end of the days, either when the Messiah will come or just a little before, it was meant <laughs> to be the Israeli constitution. However, in the last uh, few years, something has changed and uh, it seems that the Knesset is mixing its uh, very important role as a constituent assembly and its very uh, important but other role as being a legislator, an everyday legislator. It makes everyday politics in, uh, uh, in creating uh, Israeli constitution. So this, this is so different than what I would imagine. So you're saying that the Knesset not only um, goes through the day-to-day -day functional legislation of Israel, the country like any other country would, but they also wade into what you refer to as basic law, which are uh, akin, equivalent to like constitutional law, the way we think of it here in America. Yeah, it, it has to do with a decision that was made in uh, 1950 or 1951 in the Knesset. The Knesset has uh, started uh, with the aiming at the adoption of a constitution, because Israel, when it was established, 
it was supposed to adopt a constitution according to the resolution of the UN, according to Israel's uh, uh, own uh, um, aims. It was supposed to adopt a constitution, but there was a lot of uh, uh, people, many people rejected the idea. First of all, Ben-Gurion, who didn't want to have a constitution standing in his way of uh, building and creating a state with his uh, vision. And second, the ultra-Orthodox forces that saw the, the Bible and the Jewish uh, uh, religion as the real constitution and didn't want Israel to have any oh, other wow. uh, superior laws. So the decision was a compromise, a compromise that says Israeli Knesset will adopt um, a constitution, uh, basic law after basic law, and uh, one day all of these basic laws would, would become Israeli constitution. Now this happened uh, more than 70 years ago, and I would say that when I look back, uh, it happened. I mean, the basic laws were adopted one after the other. Uh, we have more than 10 basic laws that have to do with, uh, with um, uh, the main government institutions, with uh, some human rights. The thing is that uh, the, these basic laws were not seen as the constitution until uh, the 90s when the Israeli Supreme Court has decided that these are indeed the constitution. Uh, it was a type of historical moment like Marbury versus Madison, if you wish. Oh, yes. Uh, decides that there is a judicial review. So that's what happened uh, in Israel in the 90s. And this uh, what led us uh, probably uh, to today's, uh, um, um, let's say, uh, crisis. Yeah. Because many people did not like this decision. You mentioned Marbury Madison, which uh, leads me into asking the following question. What is the separation of powers like in Israel? You know, we have this separation of power system of checks and balances in our federal government in the United States. Is it comparable to Israel? We are very poor when it comes to uh, checks and balances. You see very the problem poor. Like huh. this. First, we have a unitary government. We don't have federal government. So we have one centralized system. Then we we have only one house of parliament. So means we that means no states, right? No states, no regional government, nothing okay. like this. We have only very weak local government. Okay. And we do not have a rigid constitution, and we do not have um, 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 separation of power between the legislature and the executive branch because we are a parliamentary regime. Mm -hmm. So, and once upon a time, people argued that uh, the fact that we have many parties in Israel, not uh, mainly two like United States, but many parties, some people argued that having a lot of parties is our um, uh, substitute for checks and balances because each party is uh, is uh, checking and balancing the other parties. Yeah, together. yeah. They build the major uh, government. There is no government that is based on one party. However, Israeli political parties weakened and became platforms for uh, individual uh, leaders, for individual politicians. So at this point in time, unfortunately, our only check and balances, our only effective check and balance, is the Israeli uh, court. Supreme Court or High Court depends on uh, its uh, exact function. Which makes the current moment, the current protest, what mass protests, which have sort of tampered down a little bit in Israel, very, very important. So let's get into the judicial system. What is the structure of Israel's judicial system? You just said you don't have states, so there's no state courts. It is still quite complicated. We have uh, three levels. Uh, one is the uh, 
the lower level, and uh, then we have a secondary level, which is the district court, and we have the Supreme Court, which also serve as what we, at what we call the High Court of Justice. It serves as the High Court of Justice when people uh, petition against uh, move, uh, things that the state is doing against the arbitrary move uh, uh, actions of the state. What is interesting about the High Court of Justice that not only Israeli citizens can petition to it, but also Palestinians who live in the occupied territories. Who are not citizens. Oh, that's interesting. Who are not citizens, yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, do Israeli judges have life tenure? No, not at all. They have to leave when they are 70 years old. Okay. Um, but let's say if they're appointed, let's say at the age of 40, they can stay till 70. They're, they don't have term yeah, limits. Sure, sure. What, what is really at stake these days in Israel is the debate about the way that the judges are nominated. Now, okay. when I thought about the way the judges are nominated in Israel, to students from all over the world, I, I, I spent about uh, close to a decade teaching about it, I, I said that this is the best way to that I ever, uh, that one could imagine. Best way? Oh, well then, yeah, yeah tell me, yeah. please. And I'm, I'm uh, an expert on uh, selection of candidates within parties, and I thought this is the best way. The, the nomination is made by a committee of nine. Uh, F five of them are committee of nine within the Knesset. No, no, nine no, oh. people. Okay, five, five of them are out of external. Three are Supreme Court judges, and two are a representative of the bar. And f additional four are politicians. Two uh, government ministers. One of them is the uh, uh, minister of justice, and two are from the legislator, uh, supposedly one from the opposition and one from the coalition. So you have a mix of uh, people from uh, with different interests and with uh, different point of views. And uh, about a decade ago, a little more, another rule was uh, added, which made it even better in my opinion. How so? Any, any selection should be approved by seven out of nine in the committee. Oh, this like a supermajority. Okay. Yeah. This means that the judges or any other force within this committee cannot uh, uh, nominate anyone themselves. They need to create consensus. They need to negotiate on, 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 on this. And this is, creates a balance between the professionals and the politicians. Uh, from my point of view, um, and I think this is not only my point of view, if uh, anyone wants to open uh, Aristotle and, uh, and Polyvius, the mixing of different forces within the same committee, within the same government institution, is supposed to uh, to create an optimal balance. It it uh, it is not uh, prone to specific pathologies of either politicians, professionals, or whatever. But it balances all the time these different forces. So this system, first of all, it does sound better because it, it brings more diversity of, of forces that need to sort of converge into a decision. It's much different than what we have here. Here, the president appoints. I mean, he consults with different uh, interest groups, uh, professionals and politicians, but he or she is the one that does this. Um, is it similar to the United States where the Senate has to approve the judicial nominee or not? Does the Knesset have oh, to no, approve? The this? committee is, is doing uh, all of this. I mean, there is a preliminary work uh, you know, somebody has to screen all of the people who dream to be Supreme Court judges. But at yeah. the end of the day, the last decision is made by this committee. And this oh, was wow. the government uh, attacked this committee because their argument is that 
this uh, that the judges that this committee is nominating are uh, too independent and they do not let the government have it its way. So, and the the government, the argument is that the judges are uh, much more liberal than the, the right-wing governments that we have at most times in Israel. And this uh, would be convincing unless you remember that uh, a few of the most important judges, Supreme Court judges in Israel came from the, from the Israeli right, like uh, Meir Shamgar, who was the president of the court and uh, was in the, uh, in the Etzel, in the, before the state was uh, established, he was part of the Etzel, which was the right-wing oh, wow. uh, militia. And then we have Esther Naor, which is uh, really <laughs> the flesh and blood of the Herut uh, party. I mean, it's, uh, it, it is the case that the court is defending individuals and minority, but that's what courts are for, isn't it? Uh, no, I agree with that. Just one comment and then just a follow-up question to confirm something. Uh, one is that when they say that uh, the government or politicians don't have enough hand in selecting judges, you just told me in the committee there are several politicians. It's not just professionals, right? So that's sort of, yeah. that's that's an answer to that, that moots that. The second point, uh, and I think you already talked about this, Dr. Khahat. Israel's Supreme Court seems to be similar to the United States Supreme Court in that it is powerful. It can block actions and by the by the executive branch and legislation by the Knesset. By block, I mean once they're brought to its review. Correct? It is, it is quite powerful, but it doesn't use its uh, power so often and also while it is powerful part of its being powerful is because the israeli knesset has not finished its job in writing a constitution so oh, the court oh. has to decide so they have Interesting. so much space for maneuver because they do not have uh, you know, a full constitution in their hands to guide them. So they have to make decisions uh, that sometimes, you know, the lacuna is so huge, so they have a lot of space to maneuver. Now, when, uh, when the politicians are uh, claiming that the court is too powerful, it's in their own hands to define the borders of the decisions of the court. But no, they prefer to, uh, to blame the court, to play a blame game, instead of, you know, writing a constitution and tell to the court, this is the constitution, work with it. Yeah, uh, yeah. They don't want to be blamed blame for it. That I think they were addicted to it. That's the problem. <laughs> addicted to it. I love it. Yeah. Um, Dr. Khaled, you mentioned individual polit uh, politics, individual politicians. So we'll be right back after a short break to talk about personalization of Israel's politics. From 62 to 64, that's the new retirement age in France. Many countries have increased their retirement age, including the United States. But in France, this has caused nationwide protests. Why? Why is it different in France? Why does it seem that the French are frequently up in arms about, well, about many things? In last week's podcast, Season 3, Episode 13, Professor Gilday of the University of Oxford answered this question by taking us from the Bastille to protests in modern France, such as a 1995 massive strike by the unemployed. The link to my conversation with Professor Gilday is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Rahad about mass protests in Israel. Dr. Rahad, how does the political spectrum in Israel compare to the United States? Well, I think that at the end of the day, 
probably the spectrum is uh, is not so different, but you have to remember that while you have two parties that are big tents for extreme right plus moderate right and extreme left plus moderate left, we have uh, many parties. It uh, really depends uh, in which day you count, but... Uh, in, which in the, day you count, the, okay. Yeah, I mean, in the current Knesset, we have about... 15 to 20 parties. It oh, really wow. depends on the way that you count political parties. And some of the parties are extreme right and some are uh, um, seen as extreme left, even though they are not exactly, not all of them are exactly left because the Israeli uh, left-right continuum is defined in a, a different way. It is defined mainly on the basis of uh, uh, policies that have to do with uh, security and foreign affairs. I mean, until lately, it was uh, this way. The people who supported the idea of greater Israel, of uh, annexing the occupied territories, what we call hawks, were the right wing and the left wing were people who were more... Uh, uh, tending to support a compromise, land for peace. Did However, you call them the doves? The doves, yeah. Yeah, okay. In the last decade, I would say that things has changed because the chances for peace with the Palestinians has become really low mm -hmm. uh, because in the last uh, more than 15 years, the Palestinians are divided between the Hamas rule in Gaza and the PLO rule in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. So... Even if there were, you know, even if uh, uh, a peacenik would come and would like to sign an agreement, he would uh, have to find a, uh, a partner uh, in the other side. Yeah, yeah. And they are divided, so that the Palestinian issue is becoming less important, at least in immediate terms. But the the same, more or less the same, the same dividing line line is continue continues now, and it have to do more with uh, things that have to do with religion and state, with culture. In a way, it becomes actually more, maybe a little more similar to the United States. Um, in some ways, it's it's a type of cultural war, war between uh, the more uh, progressive, the more uh, the less religious forces, and the more religious forces, and uh, I would call them populist forces rather than conservative pro, uh, pro, uh, uh, forces, because conservatism, in my opinion, is a, is a different thing. But it's we have a very strong populist trend in Israel like you have in the United States. Yeah. Definition of conservatism in the United States itself has changed. And I think populism has so forth supplanted it, superseded it in, in the right side of our political spectrum. Yeah, but um, it doesn't make uh, it's not make justice to conservatism, which is about respect for the past and the future. Yes. And and a lot of uh, and and being uh, very moderate when it comes to to changes. So the use of the word conservatism these days is quite problematic, even when you look at the at the meaning of the word. Yeah. In Israeli politics, uh, I'm, I'm going to go through uh, several different issues that we have here in America. I just want to see if there's similarities in Israel. Um, is abortion an issue, for example? Well, the, the the Jewish religion is not uh, as strict as the Christian religion when it comes to abortion. It's Interesting. Not, it's not the case that uh, religious people like abortions or that they uh, would uh, um, encourage abortion. There is also some uh, civil society groups, religious civil society groups, that would ask women not to conduct a, a, an abortion, but to give birth. But this is not a main issue. It's not. In, in Israeli politics, not at all. Uh, how about LGBTQ 
queue rights. Is that an issue? Um, well, there was a revolution, I would say, in the last decade or two in Israel. Revolution, uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's become uh, quite um, uh, legitimate uh, to be LGBT, to live like this, uh, from the point of view of many people, even the the speaker of the current Israeli legislator, the Knesset from the Likud, is uh, having uh, is a homosexual who have a uh, who live with a man and they have two uh, adopted kids or uh, something or they have two kids. So it is legitimate. On the other end hand, uh, you cannot get married as a gay in Israel because we have only religious marriage and no religion would let two gay people get married. You can have a status, a civil status of like, you're, like being married, which was given by the Supreme Court of by Israel. The, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. But, not, but you cannot get married. Um, I would say that things has really changed, but the, 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 the struggle is not over. Some forces, especially religious forces, uh, uh, do not like uh, this, uh, this development and they try to push back and they try to delegitimize uh, these uh, this, um, uh, issues. And uh, you can see these days in the protest, you can see a lot of, uh, of LGBT uh, flags, flags, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen them on TV. How about, uh, and this is my last question on this, uh, I was just trying to get a feel for current Israeli politics. Um, how about race, skin color, or geographic origin? The reason I ask that, because a lot of different immigrants, uh, people of Jewish background come to Israel, you know, a, a Jewish person that comes from Denmark and starts living in Israel is different than one that comes from Ethiopia, right? So it's uh, the race issues in Israel are different in the sense that the dividing line is not according to uh, your color. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there are people still, you know, visible minorities are always uh, uh, having, uh, are more prone to, to racism. But the dividing, the, import, the most important dividing line in Israel is between Jews and non-Jews. And, uh, and when you see racism, for example, against people of color, you will see it at most times against people who are not Jews. We have Jews that have uh, Ethiopian Jews, for example, and they also claim to, to suffer from racism, but I think that they suffer, let's put it this way, less racism than uh, some people who, uh, who, who came to Israel from uh, Africa and do not have, uh, are not Jews, but came here running away, refugees from from uh, um, persecution and other. So, so I wouldn't uh, deny that there is um, uh, racism in Israel. Um, something that you you know from the the United States. But as I said, the div the most important dividing lines is between Jews and non-Jews. Got it. Let's get into personalization of politics. Um, back in 2018, you wrote a book titled From Party Politics to Personalized Politics, Party Change and Political Personalization in Democracies. I just want to repeat that you wrote this um, and it published in 2018. Why did you write this book? Let's start with that. My obsession with uh, personal politics started in 2004 when I was still quite young. And uh, I saw that I, I was a scholar of political parties, but I saw that that individuals are becoming more and more important and parties are becoming uh, weaker vis-a-vis -vis their leaders, vis-a-vis -vis their politicians. Mm -hmm. So I started in 2004. In 2007, I published a paper that uh, uh, was written together with my colleague from Political Communication was published and it became 
quite successful in the sense that most of the people who study political personalization would refer or adopt our definition. And since then I studied many different things, but I also continued to be interested uh, by it. And then, well, you know, when I studied political parties and I felt that it becomes not like studying political parties, but like studying gossip in Hollywood, something like this. <laughs> More, less and less about institutions, about these things and more and more about specific uh, people. So with this feeling, I went to, I wanted to see whether my feeling from Israel is also uh, relevant and valid for other countries. So Offer Kenning and myself, we looked at 26 countries. We looked at uh, more than 10 indicators for uh, political personalization, for, for, for a change from party politics to uh, personal politics. And we find out that um, in most countries, you can uh, identify personalization, but the two, uh, the two uh, leaders in terms of political personalization were uh, Israel and Italy. And uh, Israel and I would have thought you you were going to say Israel and United States. Interesting, Israel and Italy. No, no. Okay, United States is 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 personal by definition because you have you know you have your uh, presidents and the governors etc. But you are absolutely right. In the nineties, uh, Marty Wattenberg, uh, an important professor from UC Irvine, wrote a book about the personalization of American politics. And he identified that even your politics that was personalized uh, from the beginning have become more and more uh, personal up to the 90s. I would say that if somebody will check it these days, you will probably find that it is once again quite personalized, at least when you look at the power balance and sometimes the power struggle between the Republican Party and uh, Donald Trump. So you can see, uh, you're absolutely right that, that personalization in probably United States is also a champion of the personalization of politics. Uh, but the government system, the presidential government system, uh, is, uh, is much about personalism. And what we really examined were countries that were either parliamentary uh, systems in which people select political parties that gather in parliament and build a, a government. They do not select uh, directly the chief of the executive. Or uh, we also checked France and other countries which are type of mixed semi-presidential systems. So has Israel, I, I, I can anticipate your answer, has, has Israel become more personalized in its politics in the last five, six years? Well, Israel has become more personalized uh, in the last three decades. In the last five years, it's become <laughs> even more personalized. I actually wrote a special paper just for a book on, uh, on the last... Uh, we had five elections in a row. I, the book was about the uh, previous four elections that were conducted in 2019-2021. So I wrote a piece and I checked whether Israeli politics has become even more personalized. And unfortunately, the result was yes. It, become, it became even more personalized in many senses, in a way that politicians behave, in a way that politics is covered by the uh, media in the ways that people think about politics, in the way that people vote. Uh, more and more people are saying that they vote to political parties because of the leaders. More and more people said that the elections were all about Benjamin Netanyahu, whether he should continue to rule or not. <laughs> and just remember, we are not uh, electing a president. We are electing a political party. When you come to the ballot box, you can see that the ballot uh, uh, papers are just of political parties. It's not, you do not select any, any person in person. You just select a political party. 
Wait, so, I'm I'm sorry. I I I want to make sure I understand that. You don't have the names of the members of the Knesset on the ballot. No, you have just the name of the political party in the. Oh ballot. wow, that's like me going and just checking Democratic or Republican on a ballot. No names. No names. Now, in the last uh, three decades, the parties add the some of the, the time the parties add their leader name to the name of the of the party but nevertheless the vote are, votes in israel are counted only for the political parties the people who are going to be elected they are decided by the parties themselves before the elections the parties submit uh, um, a ranked list of candidates and let's imagine that the party wins 30 seats in parliament so the first 30 people in the list will get into parliament. That's it. When you vote, you do not have an idea who, who these people are unless you're really, really a dedicated democratic citizens and you go to the list that are there somewhere and tell you who the people oh, wow. are within the list. Yeah. Um, I, I have so many questions to ask after you mentioned this, but I'm not going to because we don't have... I don't want to monopolize six, seven hours of your time, but let me just ask this one question. So let's say I live in Haifa, I live in Tel Aviv, or I live in Jerusalem. Uh, how do you know who your representative will be? Like here, I vote for a senator in California, I or I vote for a specific U.S. representative to the House. But if you're just voting for a party, how would you know who's going to represent you? Uh, the party that you voted for is supposed to represent you as a team, not as a specific, uh, not a specific person in the party. Uh, you may argue that uh, years ago, when the large parties were still large, you might find in, in in the specific parties representatives that identify themselves as representatives of specific area or a specific group. But uh, these days, the large part, the, the, you, you can hardly find what you call your representative. Oh, However, wow. unlike the United States, uh, the system is proportional, which means that uh, your votes are not wasted. For example, if you live in California uh, and uh, near, the, near the sea, probably if you're a Republican, you are never really represented because the Democrats <laughs> are having... That's head. right. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. go to Sierra Nevada and you're still a Democrat, you're in troubles because there the Republicans are elected. Yeah. In Israel, wherever you live, you you will get your uh, representation because the system is proportional. the The share of seats and uh, and votes is uh, quite uh, similar. So our system have the problem the, of uh, not being able to identify your representative. On the other hand, it's highly uh, representative in terms of, uh, of, uh, of um, share of seats and votes. Of course, uh, there is a way to create an electoral system that would be something in between the United States and Israel, in which you will be have representation in any case, but you will also be able to identify your representative. It is possible, but this is a, a reform uh, that we, uh, you know, I work at the Israel Democracy Institute. We have electoral reforms in mind and we propose them to the politicians for the last 30 years but uh, they are not really happy to think about it because politicians who are elected in a specific by and through a specific system are not really happy to change it someone once <laughs> said that you cannot expect um, um, you cannot expect politicians to change the electoral system because they are like um, well, um, uh, come on what's the name of the of the of the bird that you eat in Thanksgiving. Oh, turkey? Yeah, so asking politicians to change the electoral system is like asking turkeys to vote for Thanksgiving. That's the... <laughs> that's what I, yeah. I love it. All right. Um, just I just want to sum up. 
So in Israel, while you may not know who your representative exactly is, your vote is counted and is 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 represented based on the apt examples that you were given in California, whether you live in Sierra Nevada or coastal yeah, California. Yeah. We'll be back after a short break to talk about Israel's military and religion. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Rahad, what role does the IDF, Israel Defense Forces, play in Israel's society and culture? Yeah, well, it is a very, uh, it's very central. Central. To Israeli okay. culture and society, that's for sure. Um, because uh, unlike the United States, in which people serve in the military regularly, not all the people, only a small percentage of the people serve in the military, only in, uh, when there, there are war, they take more people. In Israel, at least in uh, principle, each uh, young person supposed to serve in the military unless he is an Arab or an ultra-Orthodox who uh, claim to study Bible or something like this. So this is part of uh, Israeli society of the socialization of young people in Israel. They spend uh, the ages of 18 to 20 for women and 18 to 21 for men in the military. And some of them are also spending uh, a few weeks or even a month, a year, until the age of uh, 40, 50 in the reserve duty. So in the news, uh, we heard and read about how Israel's defense forces, uh, some, some members, let me correct that, uh, some members from the reserve uh, units had voiced objection to the reform to the judicial system, the one that Mr. Netanyahu is proposing. How customary is it for members of IDF to wade into politics in Israel? Well, there were, uh, in the past, some people from uh, uh, the left uh, refused to serve in the occupied territories. Oh, but, uh, okay. There uh, the, the, the were not huge numbers. And uh, some people from the right, from time to time, refused to uh, take part in uh, uh, evacuation of settlers here and there. Uh, but right now we are talking about a different type of, uh, of uh, thing. We are talking about people who declare that they are not ready to serve in a military of a country which is not a democracy. This is the, a different claim. Yeah. They are not asking the government to, uh, to have this or that policy, but they argue that the so-called reforms that are proposed now are about making Israel into a non-democratic state. And their statement is that we will not serve in a military of a country which is not democratic. That's what they say. That's, that's the, and they put quite a lot of pressure on, uh, on the government because uh, a disproportional share of um, the best combat units and uh, uh, intelligence and the Air Force in Israel uh, uh, is uh, composed of people uh, with uh, liberal, uh, more liberal point of view, more secular point of view. So this was uh, putting a lot of pressure 
on the government. And you also have to remember that it also created counter pressures from other people in the military. And the military was in danger of becoming politicized. So that's, that's the, what happened with the military. You also have to remember that most of the people who served in the military, and not only in the military, but also in the uh, specific uh, um, secret, um, secret um, institutions like the Mossad, the Shin Bet, all of these. Yeah. So people who served there in the past were very active in, uh, in, uh, in the protest against the government. They said that the government, uh, that the reforms, the so-called reforms that were initiated would uh, uh, make Israel into a non-democratic uh, country. I was surprised that the defense minister also was against it because he's uh, he's of the same party, I presume, as Mr. Netanyahu, right? And he got, did he get fired? He got let go, right? No, he wasn't fired at the end. It's a, a typical Israeli story. He <laughs> was supposed to be fired, but the letter that said that you are fired never got <laughs> there. And I think that Netanyahu is now waiting. Well, I'm uh, sorry, what do you mean the letter there? never got there? It was never... I mean, there, there is a formal letter of, uh, that say that you are fired. He never got it. That's, so, so he's not fired. <laughs> he's still there. Oh, wow. He was against uh, the promotion of the reforms because he felt that the military is falling apart. There was a lot of pressure. And the protesters also pressured him personally. People who served with him in uh, special operations, in uh, commando units, told him that, you know, things like, we do not recognize you, we fought together, and now you're going to destroy democracy, etc., etc. There was a lot of pressure, and as a person who, uh, the, the defense minister was a general in the military, he was already almost the chief of staff, but uh, in the last moment, they found that he did something wrong with his... Uh, house he, he built he, he used the land that wasn't his so he didn't become a, a chief of uh, staff but nevertheless he grew there he's part of there and it and he felt that uh, as a person who is responsible for israel security and we have a lot of security threats he must ask uh, to, to uh, stop the the reforms the promotion of the reforms Otherwise, the, the security of Israel will be hurt. So was he for this reform, then changed his mind? Is that what happened? I, I, I would say something like this. I think most of the people <laughs> in government and out of government do not really know what these reforms are about. Oh, uh, wow. A lot, and, and they are not for it or not against it. They are not... There are a few people who lead the reforms, people who argue that, once again, we have a majority, we want to rule, we don't want the court to block us from doing what we think is, uh, think is right to do. Uh, and uh, the other forces that think that the reform is wrong because uh, democracy is uh, much more than the rule of the majority. And many of the other forces are uh, supporting or rejecting because of uh, because they trust more the people from this side or that side. And you also have to remember that politics, like in the United States, is a lot about um, social identity. And religion has to do a lot with it. If you will... Uh, want to guess what a person think about the reform, you, you, you have to ask him how religious you are, you will know. I mean, the ultra-Orthodox support the reform, the national religious, while the, the more secular people, even right-wing secular people at this point of time, are against uh, this uh, reform. Interesting, so, and, yeah. 
It's a oh. lot about identity. It's a lot about heuristics. People see that Netanyahu support the reform and they support Netanyahu, therefore they support the reform. People see that Netanyahu support the reform. They do not like Netanyahu. They reject it. They reject it. Let's take it's a break. The reform, yeah. um, sure is. It uh, sounds like it. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Rahad as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Kahad, are the current developments in Israel the widespread protests considered a crisis? Yeah, it is clearly a crisis. Uh, some people argue that this is one of the most um, uh, central crises in, wow. in the life of Israel. Some people, for example, who fought in wars say that this is uh, uh, like a war, like a really deep crisis. People see it as a crisis, and you can see the level of mobilization of the people who are against the reforms is amazing. Just imagine that one night, 1% uh, of the population on, of Israel stood on the main road and blocked it. Just imagine that uh, 30 million Americans <laughs> would stand <laughs> on a highway and block it. This is the proportions, if you think about it. This is indeed a crisis. Uh, and this is uh, from the point of view of, uh, of uh, the people who are against the reform, a fight for Israeli democracy, and from the point of view of people who support uh, this so-called reform, it's uh, uh, something that's supposed to let them govern, after all, these years. I mean, the Israeli political right is in government at most time in the last 50 years. But the, the thesis of the Israeli right is that the court and other uh, elites uh, do not let it govern. The, do not is, let it govern, I see. Yeah, the, this is, uh, you know, this is the populist claim that the media, the academia, the, all of these uh, um, uh, forces are, do not let uh, the, um, the people rule. Now, the people is, of course, always uh, a leader that is uh, some, I don't know why, but is in, always in difficulties with uh, the law and, uh, and, with, uh, and having troubles also to understand the limits <laughs> of his power and democracy. Yeah. So that's, that's the game. It's the populist the game. It's not only in, in, in Israel, it's in the United States, in Brazil, in of course. Hungary. Um, has Israel had internal crises like this in the past? I'm not referring to its, uh, its wars and battles with outside forces, you know, in Lebanon or Palestinian-occupied territories or Egypt. I'm talking about internal political crisis that bubbled up to such a, a heated point like this. I don't think so, but we did have some uh, some dramatic moments. The assassination of Yitzhak Rabin in 1995, yeah. 1995 was a dramatic moment, but uh, after it, the country kind of uh, came together United. And, uh, and uh, we also had a crisis in uh, 2005 with the disengagement from the Gaza Strip when people, uh, settlers were taken uh, by the military from, from their houses in order to, to uh, leave the Gaza Strip. So this was a crisis, especially uh, for the people. Uh, the settlers, etc. Even though uh, some people uh, forget that uh, the disengagement was conducted by Ariel Sharon when he was the leader of the Likud, 
party. Yeah. Some people are tend to blame the left for it, but <laughs> those who conducted the disengagement and those who could have conducted it came from the Israeli right. So this is uh, part of the, um, I think, part of the crisis today is people who blame uh, the left or the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court for not blocking this uh, move. So they are mad at these forces and uh, they tend to forget that Netanyahu was there and Netanyahu was uh, part of the time for this, even uh, voted three times for the disengagement and part of mm. the time he was against it. Interesting. Um, and the in your closing remarks in the last segment, you said this, democracy is much more than the rule of majority. So what is democracy to you? How do you define it? Well, the, because democracy is not just the rule of the majority, we have checks and balances. We have different majorities. We require super majorities. But if you think about it, if you're, uh, let's go back to and represent a conservative view of democracy. Mm -hmm. Democracy is about the people and the conservative person, for a conservative people person, the people are the, uh, gener the future generations and the generations that lived before. So this means that the current majority of the people have no right to change uh, things uh, unless it does so step by step. Now, if you're a liberal... So, I mean, uh, if I may interrupt you for a moment, please. So, a conservative is more about continuity and gradual, subtle reforms, if necessary. Yeah, because the people okay. from the rule of the people from a conservative are not only the people who lived right now, are the people that will live in the future and people who lived in the past. Yeah. For, for a conservative... They have a wide, wide uh, definition of the people, and that's why they are called conservative. Now, if you're a liberal, you are supposed, and I'm a liberal not only in the leftist American sense, even if you're a neoliberal in the right-wing sense, mm -hmm. what you are, what you think is that the uh, individual, and sometimes even specific groups, should be. Uh, guarded vis-a-vis -vis the state. That's what the United States was all about. They ran away from Europe, the founding fathers, and they wanted to build a state that would be, have so many checks and balances so the people would be uh, able to live uh, happily ever after without the government bothering with their religion or with their uh, income or whatever. So also from a liberal point of view, democracy is about all of the people, not just the majority of the people. If democracy is about the majority of the people, it might mean that the majority of the people will not allow you to practice your religion, uh, will yeah. take your money and divide your money between them. I mean, just imagine what a majority, a tyranny of the majority can do. So, of course, democracy is not the rule of the majority. Democracy is a lot about specific uh, rights that cannot be taken even by a super super majority is the is really um democratic institute with which you're affiliated um is that considered a conservative uh think tank institution or from what you what you're proposing i gather yes no i i wouldn't say so it's a mm -hmm. non-partisan but you know conservatism in israel these days is to conserve the system as it is. So what was once called a leftist or something like this in Israel is the real conservative, while people who call themselves conservatives are the real radicals. And I'm not sure that this is only typical for Israel. I think that in many countries, the guardians of the current order are people who used to be identified as left. Now, this is a historical moment. I mean, 50 years ago, the left has these dreams of becoming a, or not 50, 100 years ago, the socialist left have this dream of becoming a majority because the 
because the working people were a majority. They have this dream, we will become a majority and we will establish a socialist state. However, this dream was not fulfilled and the so-called leftists have become also liberals and now they call themselves social democrats or sometimes in the United States they call themselves liberals. And what is really interesting, and this is type of, you know, history is laughing at us, is that the real conservatives these days are to be found in uh, very few on the right, and many of them are, right now at least, are on the center and center left. <laughs> That's really shifted. Uh, Dr. Rahad, thank you so much for educating me and our audience and to our listeners. If you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so very much. Sure, thank you. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>